You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. And once you get there, put a thumb there and go to John chapter 3. would like to speak this morning a message that I'm entitling, Christ Jesus, the Bedrock of the Great Commission. Christ Jesus, the Bedrock of the Great Commission. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne in the name and blood of your Son. Lord, we don't come on our own merits. We don't come on the basis of being American. We don't come on the basis of how many years we've been walking with you. We come because your Son shed his blood, ripped the veil, and made a way for us to enter the Holy of Holies. And so we come in his name And we delight to come in his name, knowing that for all of our weaknesses and warts, we can come boldly before your throne and ask for help in the time of need. And we confess this morning, as we think about the subject of mission, of the great commission that was given by Jesus, we need help. We need great grace. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, our minds. The scriptures would become clear to us. We ask for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that our souls would be broken and mended upon a sure foundation, that we might see this mission even as you have seen it from before the foundation of the world, and that we might see it as the early apostles saw it and thereby that you might bear great fruit through us as a church, as a people, for the sake of your name. Amen. All right, I want to look for a moment at John chapter 3. Before I get into that, I want to say a few things about this term, missional. We have at our church what we call missional communities, and as most words in popular social media culture where the usage of verbiage is so profuse and everyone is entitled to an opinion and a view and to recognition. This word missional is another one of those words which some would say you can pull it out of a junk drawer. You open that drawer, you you can call anything in that drawer, whatever's in there, the old pencils, the a leftover brownie, uh, a note, a receipt, and you can pull that out and call it missional, and the guy right next to you can pull the other thing out and say, no, this is missional. We've done that with many words in our culture, and we've done that with biblical words. I want to confess that for me, the word missional, with an A-L at the end, when I heard it the first time, it was years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, It felt kind of hokey to me. It felt like another little thing that people are saying, and now we're feeling kind of a little motivated to do evangelism by this, and our people are feeling the newness of it, so let's call everything missional now. Okay, so now there's all of these books with the title missional. Missional church, missional body, missional people, missional theology, 
missional, 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 missional. And uh, it almost sounded Hebrew, didn't it? <laughs> Mishnah. Uh, but uh, I, I began to feel early on kind of like, uh, okay, missional, what's, you know, this word. Yes, we should be concerned for the Great Commission. Yes, the gospel is of great gravity, weight, and glory. And the church is to be a people on mission or it's not functioning as the church at all. And yet, everybody is now on mission and everybody is now missional. And I wonder how much things have really changed in terms of how we as a people are bearing and preaching the gospel and making disciples or if we've just taken on a new title. But it came to me a few years ago that the word missionary and uh, by branching off from that, the word missional is actually a biblical word. And here's why I say that, because if you do a search for the word missional, you won't find it in any English Bible. You won't even find the word missions in any English Bible. You'll find the word mission on a few occasions, but half of them aren't even applying to the preaching of the gospel. They're a mission that God gave a king in the Old Testament or things like that. And then there are a few mission mentions in Acts and one of them is where Paul and Barnabas are delivering a financial gift to the church. So we talk a lot of mission and missional, but for some reason it's not that frequent in our Bibles, except that it actually is. The word missionary actually comes from the Latin into the English, and it's, it's the same root word where we get apostle. So a missionary is a kind of English transliteration of the Latin term for apostle or apostleship comes from this. Sent ones, that's what an apostle is, is one who is sent. So we have a Lord who is himself a missionary, the, the missionary and high priest of our confession in Hebrews, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We have certain ones who were given as gifts to the church and to the world in terms of preaching the gospel and planting churches who are called apostles. If we were to pull it directly from the Latin, we wouldn't be calling Paul the apostle Paul, we'd be calling him the missionary Paul. So it's just a matter of languages. And that brought a whole new level of conviction to what we're speaking of when we think of something that is missional, someone who is a missionary, or something that is called missions, or the task of missions. So I wanted to give that preface, because some of you might have that same thought. Well, missional, where does this come from? We have what we call missional communities. Josh has coined the phrase shared apostolic mission. Another word that's been abused very much over the last 20 years, but a word that is precious to the Lord and is biblical. Apostolic, of the character of the early faith. Same thing for missional. <clears throat> I want to open that up because we need, to, we need to feel the weight of it. It's not a little trinket phrase that we're saying because, well, by golly, we, you know, we're Christians, so we're supposed to be kind of reaching out with the gospel. So we don't want to really do house churches or home groups because those sound kind of inward. So let's call them missional communities, and hopefully every now and again our people will be motivated to do something for the gospel. No, that's, that's not what we're getting at here. There's no manipulation in this. It's not a shallow attempt at growing a larger church. 
This has to do with coming into the character of the church as Jesus envisioned it when he hung upon the cross and shed his blood to purchase her. It has to do with something that goes far before the early church even itself. When the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the world envisaged, planned, purposed to reveal his glory to a company of souls, a multitude which no man can number, who were themselves idolaters and were resisting his grace. And by that display of grace and of his righteousness and his mercy, he would fulfill his eternal purpose and bring about the everlasting joy of a people who did not deserve to have that joy. And that's you and me. And that's a great number of souls that are yet to come into the kingdom and to be transferred from the darkness and domain of Satan into his glorious light. So that's what we're about here in this subject. I want to speak of Christ Jesus as the bedrock of the Great Commission because as we were sitting there singing, I just felt like the Lord gave me a little nudge in this direction. I didn't have a title written down yet. But we are to be distinctly a people on mission, a missional people, a people who are partaking in the grace and wisdom and life of God individually and together, and a people who are giving that grace, that wisdom, that gospel to others. That's what it means to be missional. But here we have, for my first point to consider, a great crisis. We have this crisis called the plight of man. And I want to say that one of the main reasons the church has not been missional, has not seen itself as sent, has not felt the weight, the gravity, nor the sweetness and privilege of what it means to be a people on mission, engaged in mission, is because we have not believed what the Bible says about the plight of man. We've not believed with conviction adequately what the scriptures say about sin. We've not believed that the greatest problem in the world is this issue of sin and connected to that, that a God who is holy in whom no sin can dwell nor ever has been nor ever can stand before him, he's that holy and the world is that wicked, that much lying under the power of the evil one, that much bound in its own rejection of him, its own hatred of his kindness, his holiness, his purity. And it's profound and heart-wrenching as starvation in poor nations is, as the, the plague of human trafficking, the abomination of global abortion, the shedding of innocent blood, as problematic and heinous and grievous as those things are, there is nothing more grievous than that which lies bound within every man, woman, and child, this problem of sin. And it doesn't require our having an abortion or getting involved in human trafficking or robbing a bank or committing murder for that to be a problem for us. It is a problem for everyone who is in Adam. For Paul said, in Adam all die. This is a part of the bedrock 
of us being a missional people is to believe what the scriptures say about the plight of man. It reminds us what the plight of our life is except for the grace that has been shown to us in Christ. Except that he went for the joy set before him to the cross to save us, to redeem us, not just from hell, but from our very selves. And it reminds us then of the plight of those who are around us in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces. It reminds us of the plight of the nations, of nations that are bound in nominal Christianity and of nations that are totally unreached, people groups that are totally unengaged and there are currently no missionaries planning yet to take the gospel to them. We've got to feel something. We've got to ask the Lord to help us feel something of the weight of the plight, the problem of mankind. If we don't have that as the apostles had it, we can't taste the sweetness of the gospel as deeply as they did either. And we're not likely to be compelled as they were by the love of Christ. For if we don't see the gravity and weight of sin, the love of Christ becomes to us something that can be defined humanly. It takes on a lightness. Well, God is love. God is loving. No, you've got to see what our offense before his throne really was to understand his love, to understand the profundity, the depth, the wonder of salvation, of justification, of him breaking into our lives loving us first that we might come into a loving of him that is precious. I just wrote down and then Ben sung it at the last song, I think second to last song. Christ Jesus as the bedrock of the great commission. It is the issue of his preciousness and his worth. And it's the issue of us experiencing and knowing his preciousness and his worth as individuals before him and then together as a people sharing in, partaking in his worth, his preciousness, how wonderful, how glorious, how sweet, how holy, how different from everyone else he is and our affections being adjusted to that reality our priorities being adjusted to that reality because as we think about being a people on mission, I could stand up here, I could lay a heavy axe upon you and make you feel guilty for how little your passion for the gospel is, how little burdened you are for the fact that people are on the precipice of hell all around you and you've very infrequently prayed for them, spoken to them, reached out to them, Probably that is the case for most of us. Probably that is the case for most American Christians. Our lives would not testify to the reality that we believe in the plight of man and we believe in the greatness of the gospel. Most of our lives, if unbelievers were to, to find out what we really say we believe, they would say, your actions don't bear witness to that. The way that you live doesn't really show me that. You smirk at the dirty jokes at work. There's nothing different about you, is there? You're a little cleaner. 
and some of your entertainment and some of this, but what's different about you? You say you have the only message, the greatest message. And what is your life? It's like the old story of Charlie Peace, who was a murderer and was on death row. And I heard this story as a new believer, and it left an imprint on me. He was on death row, and while he was being walked to his execution, uh, the priest was reading his last rites and different passages of Scripture over him. And as the priest was nominally reading to him, may the Lord keep your soul as you pass into eternity, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, he stopped with the chains on his ankles and on his wrists, and he turned to the priest and he said, do you really believe what it is that you're saying? Because I'm about to die in a few moments. And the way that you're saying that doesn't say to me that you really believe it. You're not even looking at me. Can you say that with no tears in your eyes as I'm on the verge of meeting this one that you're speaking about? He said, if I believed what you say you believe, I would crawl the length and breadth of England over broken glass just to tell one person. Even an unbeliever saw something of the gravity, the importance, the weight of the gospel and felt something of his own plight. But see, I could, I could hold that over all of us and then say, how many times have you been evangelizing this week? How many times have you shed tears for five hours a day in prayer? How many times have you fasted? Have you been eating more than you've been fasting lately? I could give all kinds of man-made standards and hang them heavy over you. Or I could do what I believe the apostles did here. Hold forth the preciousness of Jesus and remind you of the plight that you've been saved from. That you might be compelled by his love. So man is in a great plight. John chapter 3, Jesus gives description to it. He says in verse 16, a verse that we've all heard, but that bears hearing over and over. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. You see, the plight is removed for those who believe. The plague, the cancer of sin, the wrath that rests upon those who have rejected him is removed. They should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Do you hear the plight, the problem, the predicament that your neighbor, your sister, your brother, your co-worker is in? They're not just good people that hopefully will get a little closer to a church and then that will make them Christian. They are dead in trespasses and sins, Paul says. They are condemned already, Jesus said. Condemned. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to 
Let that sink into our hearts. What a travesty for us to skirt through life not really believing these things and to stand before God at the end of our lives and to realize that these weighty truths that compelled the apostles of old rested so very lightly upon our schedules and our affections and our lives. Our neighbors are condemned without the gospel. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Prostitutes loved the darkness. Arrogant philosophers loved the darkness. Religious people loved the darkness. Because to reject the light is to reject the Son who has come as the perfect demonstration of the Father. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In the last two verses of the chapter, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son. You see, the Son is precious and of the greatest worth to the Father. And one of the most remarkable things about the gospel is that God takes people like us who had no concern for Jesus, no affection for Jesus, no sense of worship toward Jesus, and changes our hearts, causes us to be born again so that we can see as most worthy and most precious what God, the creator of all things, sees as most worthy and most precious. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a gift then when in the dullness of our hearts, and we're praying and the Bible is boring to us. A little flame lights inside. And you begin to have a sense of love for God. And you remember my heart is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And you remember I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. As the old Puritan prayed, Lord, my flame is small. Oh, quench it not, raise it to a greater flame. As A.W. Tozer said in the foreword to his classic, The Pursuit of God, while my flame is yet small, perhaps others may be able to light their wicks at it, and we may see a rising flame of affection for God, of a sense of his worthiness, of a sense of how glorious he is. Well, this is at the bedrock of what it means to be missional. The missional church, wait a minute, I didn't finish that last verse. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Do we believe then the exclusivity of the gospel? Do we believe this? This is going to be one of the things that the church in, the la- in these last days is going to be most persecuted for. And it's not because of something we've concocted or come up, it's because of what our Lord has declared himself. That if you've not come to believe upon him, to trust in him, to receive his righteousness by faith, if you have no honor in your heart for Christ, the wrath of God remains on you and will one day be finalized in eternal death. That will be your experience. Other religions claim to be supreme, but none, none is so singular as the gospel. Connected to that, none is so glorious. None is so sweet. None addresses the problem of sin and the plight of man as the gospel does. You can talk to the deepest of philosophers, the most intellectually driven, the ones with the greatest prowess in their minds, having written volumes and giving thousands of hours of lectures and been gawked at by young 20-year-old aspiring philosophers, sit down with one of those men and ask them, how do you answer the problem of sin? How do you answer it? Well, there's a certain measure of morality we should all have. Okay, then how do you draw that line? When does it become right for a homosexual to have a relationship, but for a man not to have a relationship with a 12-year-old girl? How do you draw that line? Well, it's not proper. Who says? There must be an ultimate one who stands above man. There must be a creator of all things who is also the judge of all mankind. The remarkable thing for us is once we discover, because you can ask that same philosopher, what about your sin? Well, I don't, you know, I I don't kill anyone. I don't do this. I don't do that. Have you ever been arrogant? Have you ever thought higher of yourself than you have of other people? Have you ever, you're married, have you ever stared at other women and lusted after them? You don't think that's wrong? You don't think there's something amiss in that? Well, I can look, but I can't touch. Okay, what about the fact that you have had other people around you that you've considered yourself better than them? You just think in a haughty way. I'm telling you only the gospel can humble a man and bring him to such a place where he can grow as a servant. That's grace. And the philosopher is in that plight as much as Adolf Hitler was. But there's hope. There's a glorious hope of salvation. I've written here, the missional church must have unshakable footing. That is, it must be grounded in the scriptures It must be confessional or open and clear about what it knows of Christ and of the gospel. It must be corporate in its witness. That means we're not just doing our own thing. That means as missional communities, as a church, we see ourselves as being engaged in a work together as a people. And we're eager to fight against divisions, schisms, Little subtleties of jealousy, little 
strange things that are in the soul of man to perform spiritual acts and to think of ourselves as more spiritual than others. False identities, false ways of lifting our souls up above others, though in fact we're putting on a humble face. Only a resting in the gospel and abiding in Christ and being filled with his spirit and grounded in his word can fit us to be a people who are united together in the gospel and in mission. And it must be, it must be a corporate reality. That is to say, not corporate in the sense of business, but corporate in the sense of together. And we must be endued with power from on high. Mankind is in a crisis. Our city is in a crisis, which means we as the people of God are in the midst of a war. We're in the midst of a war whether we realize it or not. And our battle looks different in different contexts and in different seasons. Sometimes it does look like tears in prayer with fasting. Sometimes it looks like buying ice cream from the store and having my neighbor over for an evening. Sometimes it looks like going out to a dark place and openly preaching the gospel, even as the apostles of old did. And other times it looks like listening to a coworker who's going through a divorce and not saying much and waiting on the Lord and asking for wisdom on how to best befriend them, serve them, and bring the gospel to them. All of those acts, the ones that seem like they are more frontline, like being a missionary in a Muslim nation, or the ones that seem almost tough to discern even as being ministry, they are all war if we are engaged as a people in helping others to see the preciousness and the worth of Jesus. They all matter, and different ones of them will be strengthened based on the giftings of different saints. We need to be able to treasure that, understand that, see that, discern that, help each other in that. So, let's look briefly at Matthew 28. There's so much here. I almost call this message the greatness of the Great Commission, partly because the Great Commission has become so familiar for many of us. And when we hear it, I don't think our ears burn in the way that the apostles' ears burned when they heard it on that holy mount. And we need to hear it afresh, that we might be a people on mission. So let's look at verses 16 to 20. The eleven disciples of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We know from a few verses back, Jesus had told them to meet him there. Then he says this remarkable thing in verse 18. Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that mean? I mean, never a man spake like this before. That is a strange thing to flow from the lips of a human frame albeit one that was just about to go up into the sky. 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, I want to look at a few passages and do a brief survey of the book of Acts. First, to gather from the preaching of the apostles what it meant to them that all authority had been given to Jesus. And then secondly, to gather from the apostles and from their experiences in this, these early churches, what was the flavor of the missional church of the first century. So I hope your ears and your heart are perked up. I hope your spirit is awake. And if it's not, stir it up a little bit. Stir up the gift within you. Tell your soul to bless the Lord and to hear his word. You can do that. Sometimes we have to. So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's look first at Acts chapter 2. Looking at verse 32, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing. Speaking of the Holy Spirit having been poured out on that Jerusalem community of believers. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter boldly proclaims the same Peter who was afraid of the finger of a little woman pointing at him not long before this, saying you were one of those disciples and he denied the Lord. Now he's pointing at the religious leaders, many of whom had a direct hand in crucifying Jesus. And here's what he says to them. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All authority has been given to Jesus. And the way Peter words that is that God the Father has made him both Lord and Christ. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 11 and following. We have the, Peter of, uh, the story of Peter speaking in Solomon's portico. The lame beggar had just been healed and he was clinging to Peter and John. Peter goes on to say, men of Israel, in, in verse 12, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him to walk? The God of Abraham, <clears throat> the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised up from the dead." Listen to the high Christology of the apostles, the high vision of Jesus, of who he is, of what it means that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is high and lifted up. He's the Lord and the Christ. That is the Messiah. That's not Jesus' last name. 
It means the Messiah. That means the promised king of national Israel. The only one through whom their restoration could come. These are big things the apostles are saying about Jesus. And they're saying it into the ears of ones who crucified him. He goes on to call him the author of life. You killed the author of life. What a tragic paradox. You killed the author of life. Now he's telling them that they would not even have been born, nor would they have grown up and lived as children and breathed the breath of life and sucked in the air of the earth. Their hearts would not have continued beating except for this one you crucified. He's the author of life. You see that? Christology, the view, the, the, the study, the way that the apostles viewed this one who had now ascended on high. This is the second reason we are not missional primarily as a church in the West. Because we have a low view of Jesus. We have a low view of sin and its graveness. And we have a low view of Jesus and his holiness, his greatness, his sweetness or as we've been saying, his preciousness and worth. So many other things, let's get practical. So many other things are worth more to, to us than Jesus so much of the time. And how can you proclaim and be on mission to people who are bound in darkness and in dying affections when you yourself are being pulled and jerked and moved by those same earthly worldly affections this is what it means then to bear witness to the gospel the apostle said we have been witnesses of these things that doesn't just mean they were street preaching every day it means we've seen him we've seen him we've seen something worthy of dying for we've seen love we've seen righteousness We've seen humility. We have seen God in the flesh. We've seen him. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, Peter said, whom God has given to everyone who obeys him. The apostles were witnesses of Christ and they knew that the Holy Spirit was also the great witness of Christ who exalts Jesus in our minds and hearts. We need to pray for that work every day. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. You know what the greatest temptation is? It's not the one that leads to the sin of pornography or the one that leads to the sins of greed and gluttony and lust and anger. It is the temptation to value Jesus. The temptation to value anything else above Jesus. That's why the psalmist said, I need thee every hour. That's, that's the chief temptation that I want to lose its power in my life. That other things would not eclipse him. That I could be day by day moment by moment, a witness. Not only have I seen his grace, I'm seeing it. Not only have I been saved, but I'm being saved. Right now, as I sit with my coworker, by God's grace, I'm thinking of his needs more than my own. 
as I'm sitting with my family member who's flying off the mouth and being obnoxious. I'm, I'm seeing the fruit of self-control in my life and finding grace to hear him and to speak to him in a manner that is in keeping with the character of Jesus himself. That's bearing witness. Or preaching the gospel is also bearing witness. I love the old story. Keep an eye on the clock here. I love the old story of George Whitfield when he was accused of being an actor in his preaching because he was so dramatic in the way that he preached on his little platform that he went all over America. I don't know if you know this, but there was a time in American history when George Whitfield was more recognizable to the peoples of the Americas than was Benjamin Franklin or even uh, the President of the United States. They say something like 90% of the whole population of America had heard him preach in person. And hundreds of thousands of people had come to faith during this remarkable great awakening of the 1700s. But in the story, a, a, cynic, a cynic was accusing him of being an actor and playing on people's emotions in his preaching. But what his response was, was that most preachers are preaching without any passion. And you wouldn't accuse them of manipulation. But the reason they're preaching in the way that they're preaching is because they don't really believe what they're talking about. The reason the tears flow from my eyes is because I believe that there are people in my hearing who could an hour from now be experiencing eternal death and damnation. I believe that the words that flow from my mouth about this precious one, this worthy one, are the only words that can save a man's soul. How can I not have any feeling about this? You would have that feeling if your child was hanging out of a house that was on fire. You would not be polite in moving people out of the way. And he said, therefore I will bawl, or I will cry out, I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. I love that. I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. I'm not playing games here. People are perishing. You people are perishing. This is the good news. It's the only news that can save you. How can I trifle with caring about what you think of me? And how can we as a church do the same? Be bound by self-consciousness and the fear of man and not have a sense of how important it is that he has saved us and that we now are living and moving and having our being in the midst of a city that desperately needs him. May we, may we therefore bawl, though we may not stand on the table at work and cry out every day, though somebody might, but that's not really the point. The point is, we're not going to be velvet-mouthed. We're not going to play games with the gospel. That's what it means to be missional. It means to believe the gospel and to act accordingly. Well, there are many more passages I could go to on that, but for the sake of time, I'll move on. There are two little portions in Acts here that I want to look at to speak to the issue of our missional communities, what it means to be on mission together. 
We have a few examples. Again, the phrase missional community is not in the Bible. But the theme of, of the church as a community, as a body, is very biblical. And the, the, the phrase mission, missionary, and by extension of that, missional, are very biblical ideas. In Acts chapter 4, we have this situation with Peter and John before the council. And they've just been busted for preaching the gospel openly against the desires of the religious establishment. And they've just come rejoicing and praising God for what had taken place. In verse 23, this is an interesting little phrase I never noticed until early this morning. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I like that little sentence. I've never noticed it before. But it speaks to what we're aiming at for our missional communities. Here you have a few of the brothers. <clears throat> there are thousands of believers now in Jerusalem by now, by this situation, and it's time. And the apostles are preaching, they're being persecuted, they're rejoicing about that persecution as they were privileged to bear witness to the gospel in a way that stirred up the demons that had been so long undisturbed in Jerusalem. And it brought resistance and persecution and they were happy about that. But then it says, uh, rather than gathering again in a large venue where they might have fit the thousands of saints that were in Jerusalem, instead they gathered in another kind of building and it was with saints who were their friends. This really speaks to what we're aiming at for missional communities. We want to be a people who are growing in our love for God together, growing in fellowship and friendship together, and who share together a burden, a vision, a hope for the salvation of specific people in our cities and in extension even to other places. So it says that they gathered together. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, when was the last time you had a real sense that you were lifting your voice together with the saints in prayer? That the church might be matured, that lost people might be saved, that God will be glorified in profound and remarkable ways in our city and in the nations of the earth. This is part of the character of the early church, and this is part of the character that we as elders, and that I hope many of you as members, partners in the church will be jealous for, that will, will characterize the way that we function as the church. They lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, Make note of this, persecution is bearing down upon them and their response was not to wring their hands and to fluff their hair and to stand up and pace back and forth and freak out and say, I thought you were going to bear fruit, Lord. They're persecuting us. What do we do now? Instead, they acknowledge the sovereignty of God in their address of him. You're the king. And lest, lest you might think they're only giving a kind of theological statement about the fact that he's the king of a kingdom, 
They go on to describe him as the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the, king, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they identify the sovereign Lord as the creator of all things. You're the creator of all things, even our little lives, even the greatest issues of history down to the smallest affairs of our lives. You're sovereign over it, therefore... We will not fear, therefore we will not buckle, therefore by your grace we will be perseverant in the thing that you've called us to do, persistent. And then they go on to pray for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, they're acknowledging, God, you are sovereign over the cross. The cross was not a tragedy. The cross was your glorious plan of redemption. You were not taken aback by it. You didn't put plan B into play for the cross. It was your intention from before the creation of the world. And you've enfolded us who were sinners just like Pilate, you've enfolded us into that glorious family. And this is what you had predestined to take place in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon, pay attention to this, they're acknowledging God's sovereignty. Oh, well, if God is in charge and God is sovereign over history and over the nations and over the church and even over the harvest, he's the Lord of the harvest. If God is sovereign over all of these things, then why even pray? He's just going to, no. He's not just going to carry things out because he's sovereign. In his sovereignty, he has chosen a people through which he would bear witness to himself, who would be conjoined with his prayers. Therefore, we pray because he's sovereign, not in spite of his sovereignty. In fact, if you don't believe that, ask this very simple question that J.I. Packer asked once why do you even pray if he's not sovereign because if he's not sovereign then whatever you're asking for you ought to carry out yourself you pray for your unbelieving friends because you know that you can't save them you know that they can't save themselves you don't pray prayers like Lord would you well you've already put within them the ability to choose you and follow you so just, uh, just kind of bring them into that or give me the, the plan and the method for bringing them. No, you pray, God, get a hold of their souls. You pray, God, wake them up. You pray, God, peel the bandages off their eyes. Give them the gift of repentance. Convict them of sin. Break into their lives. Have mercy upon them. That's what we pray. And we're acknowledging that he is the Savior, not us and not them. And that is exactly what these saints do. Their view of the sovereignty of God did not lead them to passivity. It led them to partnership in the gospel and with the church. And so, Lord, they said, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
Not look upon their threats and remove them. Look upon their threats and give us the boldness to keep preaching in the face of those threats. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Typical missional community gathering. (laughs) Maybe not. And probably won't ever be. This is the only time in the whole book of Acts that the house was shaken. So I'm not saying we should expect that every time. But what we can pull from this passage is that the saints were missional in their view. They rejoiced that they were being persecuted and they didn't pray in the face of threat. They didn't pray that God would rescue them from the costly mission that they were engaged in, but rather that he would give them power from on high and boldness to continue faithfully bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. And so it says then in chapter 4, well, ha, here it is. We go down just, uh, well, let's go ahead and read verse 32. Now, with the full number of those, uh, the, the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You see that? That's together. That's partnership in the gospel. Paul says in Philippians, you have partnered with me in the gospel. And he rejoiced in that. Here they were in one heart and one soul together. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's what we want upon our church, upon our missional communities, great grace. And the other thing that can be said on this is in Acts 11, the church in Antioch, after it had just been formed, it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them or upon them. We need to pray for that. We're we're not here just to have church services. We come together once a week in a home and enjoy hors d'oeuvres. I like hors d'oeuvres. I didn't get my physique from not liking hors (laughs) d'oeuvres. But there's something that I'm craving so much more. It is it's that God should be glorified in the church. That great grace would be upon us visibly, demonstrably. And that numbers would pass from darkness to light and be added to his family. Be transformed. Be saved. There is little more in this life that could bring greater joy to the soul than to be one of God's servants in the process of him bringing another soul from darkness to light and then making disciples out of that. Great grace was upon them all. The hand of the Lord was with them. They were a praying people and that's one of the reasons those things were the case. If we were to survey Acts, as I wanted to do, but I don't have time to do, 
and to look at the fruit of this great grace being upon them, we would see remarkable things. We would see in chapter 2 that numbers were being added daily to the church. We would see in chapter 5 that more and more men and women were passing from darkness to light. We would see in chapter 6 that numbers increased rapidly. We would see in chapter 13 that many Jews and devout Gentiles were believing upon the Lord Jesus. We would see in chapter 14 that a great number believed in Paul's labors. We would see in chapter 17 that even some philosophers believed and followed the Lamb. We would see that Paul had a heavenly vision. That's what he called this missional vision. And he said, toward the end of his life, by God's grace, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. That was... We spoke about sin as being the plight with regard to missions. We spoke of the the worth and glory of Jesus as being the center of missions. We spoke of the character of these communities, these missional communities, as we're calling them, as being the fragrance of mission, that to bump into these people, to see their love for one another, to see the way that they walk, to see the way that they reverence God and adhere to his word, to see their kindness, to see their humility, to see their vulnerability, that when they sin, they bring it to the table and find quick cleansing and wholeness in the gospel again. To see this mysterious people, that it says outsiders were afraid of going near them, and yet numbers were being added to them daily. That's what we're praying for in the church. That means that there would be a people in the earth who are living upon new covenant grounds and experiencing the Holy Spirit and sharing in, partaking in the wisdom, light, love, and reality of God together and then sharing that with those in other places. So that was the fragrance of mission. Number four, we have the task of mission where Jesus says, and I don't even think I've read it yet, that was the first passage I mentioned. We'll close on this thought. Matthew 28, Jesus gives that familiar statement, which is a holy calling. It's called the Great Commission traditionally. We started it, but we didn't finish it. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the task of mission is to preach, is to go. For some that's go to the workplace, go to our city, go to specific people within the city. As missional communities, that is to go together. And for others, that is to uproot and go, perhaps to other cities or other nations for the same task, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to gather disciples together into churches And over time, to see elders appointed and churches strengthened and rooted in the gospel that they themselves might become a missional, apostolic kind of people.
Isn't that a precious vision? I need to say that there's something tagged on to this missional prayer with reference to unreached and unengaged peoples. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. We're speaking about those places that have had less of a gospel presence and some of them that have had zero gospel presence in terms of a viable witness. The IMB uh, Global Research Department, their latest statistics are that there are still 11,749 people groups that are considered unreached. That means that less than 2% of their population has any profession of an evangelical kind of faith. 11,749 people groups. These people groups make up somewhere around 2 to 3 billion people in the world. We have 7 billion in the world. 2 to 3 billion of them are considered unreached in that sense. That means a very small percentage of their population is called Christian. Of those people groups, there are 7,038 people groups. Oh, I'm sorry. I gave the wrong stat. The first one was all the people groups in the world. Okay, so 11,749 people groups in the world altogether. 7,038 of them are in that other category, considered unreached. Less than 2% of them are professing any kind of evangelical faith. Of the 7,038, 3,260 are considered unengaged. And what that means by the missiologists is that to our knowledge, there is no plan in place by any organization, any church, or any individual to go to them with the gospel. That means there's zero believers in their villages or in their nations, and there are no plans in place to go to them yet. Paul had a great burden, and it was part of his apostleship, to go to the places, Romans 15, where Christ has not yet been named. And the church has a responsibility to be a missional people together. Listen, we're not going to do it in those far-to-reach places if we can't do it here. If I can't function as a healthy member or partner of a local church by God's grace, how in the world am I going to break open places that have been ruled by Islam and ancient principalities and powers and wicked idolatries and go and preach the gospel and plant churches there if I'm ashamed of the gospel here, if I'm prayerless here, if I'm uncommitted to the church here, it's not going to happen. Therefore, we must, as the apostles did with the churches, strengthen one another in the gospel, in the faith, and grow in the grace of God to serve the Lord as a missional people here. And we need also to ask the Lord to mark our hearts as a people, both for the salvation of many in Kansas City and the salvation of many in the uttermost parts of the earth, and to pray that he would give us the privilege of being involved in that, whether we are those who are going, those who are sending, we are all those who are praying and those who are bearing witness. So we need to pray for that, that there would be a thrust. Jesus said, go. And last point is the joy of mission. And then I want to pray. I want to pray for those of you that would say, my heart has grown dim with regard to the gospel. There's no brightness there. 
I don't have a sense that I'm called to be a child of God engaged in mission. I might even have the language, but there's no affection. There's no weightiness. There's no urgency there. I lack hope. I'm not gripped by the hope of the gospel that as I pray for open doors, as I pray for men and women and children to be saved, as I look for open doors and speak and share the gospel in different ways, I don't have hope that men, women, or children will be saved. And I want to pray that we would be delivered from such a mindset because it cannot be found in the Bible. It cannot be found in the the theology of the apostles. Their view of missions, they went with a great hope and faith knowing that everywhere they went, there would be somebody who was quickened, convicted, and saved and would be brought into the kingdom for it was a sure purchase that Jesus made on the cross. Jesus said at the end of our lives, those who serve faithfully will enter into the joy of our master. And I'm asking that we as a church would enter into the joy of our master in his mission today. And I've prayed that there would be a shift and a change in many hearts today. That we would change the way we think. That God would transform the way that we see ourselves and our missional communities and our congregation the way we see the plight of man, the way we see the sweetness and power of the gospel. So there's great joy in mission when the the saints in Acts 15 heard about the salvation of the Gentiles. It says they were filled with great joy. When Philip preached in Samaria, there was great joy in that city. It says, may it be that this year would be a year that in a remarkable and increasing way, there would be great joy in Kansas City. May it be that out of Bellicose Church and all of the other churches in this city, the joy and the greatness of the gospel, the bedrock of the gospel, Jesus, the great jewel of our faith, would be treasured by those who had no mind for him, no heart for him before. So let's stand.